Okay. First Thessalonians chapter 2, we got as far as verse 16 last time. So in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul rejoiced over the work of the Lord in the life of the Thessalonian church. Chapter 2, the Apostle Paul defi- uh, defended his integrity and began to rejoice in the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. And where we pick up tonight, all the way actually into chapter 3, he's going to start filling them in on what happened uh, after he left, since he left the Thessalonians, and why he can't come back, And although he wanted to get back. He uh, expresses his uh, uh, excitement over the good report that Timothy brought from the Thessalonian church because the Apostle Paul is in Corinth. So uh, again, he returns to his love for the Thessalonian church, also his desire to be with them. Verse 17 says, uh, But we, unlike the gospel haters that we talked about last week, but we, brethren, have been taken away, and the uh, some of your versions say torn away, from you for a short time in presence. Uh, The idea is uh, physically, not in heart, uh, and he misses them. Uh, So we've been taken away for you from a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. So once again, um, the Apostle Paul uses the word we. He includes his ministry team, Silas and Timothy. And he says, we were taken away from you. That, that, that term literally means orphaned. We were orphaned from you. Another version says, we were again, we were torn away from you. In other words, we were like a child who was taken away from their family. And, and the idea there is that it, is an, it was an emotionally painful experience for us to have to leave you with all the trouble we had in Thessalonica. Uh, some ask, who was the orphan, the Apostle Paul or the Thessalonian church? I would say both. And just remember that the Apostle Paul is using a whole series of metaphors here. Um, he's used the metaphor of a, of a mother, of a father, uh, and and earlier in the letter. And again, the point is that it's painful. Now, it's amazing to me that a guy like the Apostle Paul, who has tremendous backbone, I mean, he just, he's unwavering in so many different ways that he could love people uh, so much and, and only be gone a short time that he is longing to return to them. And if you recall, we already saw that some of the false teachers uh, accused the Apostle Paul of, of not caring about the Thessalonian church, that he came to them only for what they could get, what he could get from them. And as soon as things got a little hot in the kitchen, he sort of, he sort of ran out uh, on them. J.B. Phillips, though, puts it this way in his paraphrase, though never for a moment were we separated in heart. So he totally misses them. Another version says, our hearts never left you. Yes, our our bodies left you, but our hearts never left you. Now you say, this is kind of unusual language. In Philippians 1, 7 and 8, the apostle says, just as it is right for me to think of you all because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So there's this great affection that the Apostle Paul has uh, for the, the Thessalonians here, and he's talking about that. And he says, but Satan hindered us. Another version says, but Satan stopped us. And so what does that mean? Well, we're not exactly told. Uh, Some people think it might have been an illness. Some people think it might have been the legal ban that he had. Others could think about, well, there's problems in Corinth, and we know about the problems if you've studied 1 Corinthians with us, so maybe he's dealing with the problems in Corinth. Or maybe just the opposition that he faces in that town, and he knows that 
you know, uh, th- maybe uh, Timothy is like, hey, listen, you, you really, you, no, it's too hot there, man. You, you can't go back. Now, the word hindered is a, is a military term, and it has to do with breaking up the road or making the road impassable. That was one of the things that they used to do back then is that, you know, they didn't have four-wheel drive vehicles and that kind of stuff like that. So when they wanted to stop an army from coming, they would just break up the road and then they couldn't ride the chariots on it. So in that sense, uh, by making the road impassable, I kind of think he might be talking about it's it's the enemies that are that are pausing that are causing the problem, and we know that that Satan constantly uses the enemies of the church to to make things difficult for the church. That's why I'm a little wary sometimes. I don't mean to seem overly judgmental, but I'm a little wary when I hear uh, churches and pastors saying. Oh, the politicians love us. I'm thinking, well, they're not supposed to love you. <laughs> that's, if, you if you look in, if you look in the, uh, you know, in the Bible, that's not really the, the way it goes because the reality is, is that Satan is visible, uh, being against the church in the New Testament and he's actually visible inside and at work in many of the churches. Uh, there's an old expression, when God is at work, Satan is certainly alongside. Uh, as I've said to many of you in this time, you know, in our church, sometimes we'll, we'll see something going on in our church and they'll be like, man, it, Pastor Jim, that, that seems like the work of the devil, man. What do you think? And I'll, I'll say something like this. Listen, if Satan never visits our church, then we can bet Jesus never does. <laughs> because once, once, once Satan knows that Jesus is part of a church, he's going to pay it a, a visit. So how do you know? If it's Satan hindering you or if it's God closing a door, it's really not that easy to tell all the time because of of how subtle it can be at times. And uh, generally, I usually kind of use this framework. If, If what I'm doing and how I'm living is according to the word of God, um, and, and there's a hindrance that it, it could be the, it could be the devil. Satan is at work. Now, generally, Satan tries to hinder where God is blessing. So when God is blessing the truth of his word, when God is blessing uh, the actions of his people, that's where you're going to see Satan um, trying to set up a roadblock, trying to break up the road, trying to make it uh, so difficult. We always have here, you know, <laughs> when we first opened the building here, you know, the telephone guy would come. I've never seen wiring like this. We're like, we know. <laughs> and so there's always, there's always some crazy thing that just doesn't seem to be uh, working right. Um, but, but, but God used it for good. How do we know God used it for good? Well, we got first and second Thessalonians. If Satan didn't hinder him, then we would have never gotten this letter. Uh, verse 19, he says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? And, and so they expect, um, to see, to know the Thessalonians in the next life. They're like, 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 hey, when the Lord returns, we're gonna, we're gonna, you're gonna be our joy. It's not gonna be like, well, who are those guys? They're gonna know who they are. And then verse 20, for you are our glory and joy. So the Apostle Paul breaks out in praise. He has great hope in the work of the Lord, and he has great hope in the work of the Lord in the life of the Thessalonians and, and in their church. And the Thessalonians' faith uh, brings him, in addition to hope, brings him great joy. Third uh, John verse 4 says this, the Apostle Paul says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. And that, that's really such a, a valuable thing for us to remember about one another. And, and despite missing them so much, you could say he's homesick. He only was there for a short time. He misses these people. He rejoiced in all that the Lord was doing in their lives. Timothy came back. He's like, oh, you're not going to believe what's going on there. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's hot. The authorities are, are, are giving them a difficult time, but the gospel is spreading like wildfire. And so even though the apostle Paul can't go there, he's very thankful for the work of God in their midst 
uh, in the, as individuals and in their church. And he says here, you are a crown of rejoicing. To him, this, this church of converts that he had preached the gospel to uh, was a crown. We might say they were a trophy of grace to him. They were like a medal that you might receive given to the winner of a race. We might say they were to him like a gold medal in the Olympics. Interesting, uh, the Apostle Paul's confidence in his own salvation um, at the end of time is connected to the fruit of their faith in the present. We don't really think about that, do we? We're Americans. We think of us, well, it's my personal faith and it's my own individual faith. But here's a guy who's saying, listen, your faith and the fruit of of my ministry with you is actually giving me confidence in my own salvation. In other words, their their faith seemed to have the effect of filling the Apostle Paul's heart with confidence in both the Lord and in his own salvation. Now, that's very surprising to me that he would talk this way and that, that, that some part, not all, of his assurance of salvation is connected to the perseverance of the people in the Thessalonian church. Now, I think this is hugely important for us to, to note this, that, that our lives, your, your faith is important to my faith. My faith is important to your faith, and your faith is important to each other. As we all look at the reality of watching people growing in grace, we see the work of God in others, we begin to think, this thing is real. This thing, this thing is real. I might not see it in my life right now, but, but I see it in the lives of others. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, after telling them to stop complaining and, and disputing and, and it was time to shine his lights, the Apostle Paul wrote this, Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice. Another version says, he says, so I might be proud or I might boast in a good way in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So what is he saying to them? Listen, you guys hold fast the word of life. So, okay, in the day of Christ, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to rejoice. I'm not going to be like, where's all those people from the Philippian church? Where's all those people that, that, that I ministered to? No, I'm going to rejoice in that. Philippians 4.1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast, some versions say firm, in the Lord, beloved. Now, I, I talked a little bit, of, I mentioned this briefly on Sunday. You say, well, why is this so surprising to you, Pastor Jim? I find myself saying this to you guys all the time. It's like, well, what can we do for you? I'm just like, walk with Jesus. And they're like, no, 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 really, what can we do for you? I'm like, no, 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 really, walk with Jesus. Now, some of you like, he just doesn't want any problems. Well, that is part of it. <laughs> but, 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 but actually, there is problems when you walk with Jesus. And, and so, and so just, just, it's, it's natural for us to want others to walk with Jesus because that's a good thing, but it's also natural for it to strengthen our own faith. He's confident in his calling. He's not doubting his salvation. He knows that he has turned to God and put his trust in Jesus Christ. Yet, I think it's important that we don't overlook his teaching here. When followers of Jesus, when you work hard to strengthen the faith of others, when you work hard to help others grow in their faith, when you work hard to help others be confident in their faith, something happens in them, but something happens in you as well. The very thing 
that we are helping others with is growing in us. That's what he's saying. He's saying the very thing that I, that I'm communicating with you to help you is actually growing in me. Who knows what it was like when he's writing these letters, how much of it he already knew and how much he is discovering as he's writing or as he's dictating. And what, and what, what happens is as you pour your life into others, as you help them prepare for life, grow their faith and prepare for meeting God face to face, it's also preparing you at the same time. Now, some people would say, I disagree with this. I don't think this is right at all. Uh, we, we, we know, Pastor Jim, you already taught us in Galatians that, that it said that the Apostle Paul was uh, about Jesus Christ and him crucified. You have a short memory, Pastor Jim. That was only a short time ago. We, we know that. And so I'll quote a verse to you, Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's right there. It's right there. I'm not boasting in the people. I'm boasting in the cross of Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Well, what, 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 how do you, how do you reconcile these things? F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, the English Bible scholar from the last century, I find him to be most helpful here. He wrote these words. His glorying in his converts as he saw the grace of God manifested in them was but a phase of his paramount glorying in the cross. They were the fruit of the preaching of the cross. So the more he preached the cross to them, the deeper they grew in their faith, the more solid they grew in their faith, the more mature they grew in their faith, the more confidence it gave in him to go out and do what? To preach the cross. And so he saw the effect that it was having on people. I'm constantly having people saying to me, oh, you know, man, things are getting tough. Things are getting rough. What should we do? And I'm like, we pray and preach the gospel. We pray and preach the gospel. We pray and preach the, and preach the gospel. So what's happening here is the word of God was at work in the Thessalonians to help them to believe and to obey. And it was actually inspiring the Apostle Paul to move on. So verse 19 is, is ultimately very important for your personal ministry. And every believer is called to a personal ministry, that you would be called to a ministry of hope. Remember in the Bible, hope is certainty and joy. Now, it wasn't, his hope and joy was, was, was in much more than the Thessalonians' faith. It was in, and it must be for all of us, the power and sovereignty of God to call people to faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to help them walk in faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So you see how the whole thing's working together? He, he's, he's preaching the gospel to them. They're walking with the Lord. They're continuing to walk with the Lord. It's giving them great confidence. It's give, and it's giving, it's giving them hope and them joy. They're becoming more confident in their faith. And the same thing is happening to the apostle Paul, which is going to what? It's going to help him in the next trial. He's going to be like, up, oh, another hindrance. I'm serving God. Hindrance. Trying to serve the Lord. Hindrance. See, we think when things go wrong, oh, I must be doing something wrong. Now, sometimes it's that. But other times it's doing, we're doing stuff very, very right. And the other guy doesn't like it. And, and he is coming after us. Now there's something else I want to raise to you here just to, just to get you thinking a little bit. And, and you can agree with me or disagree with me. Is it wrong to seek this hope and joy? Cause a lot of times we're like, well, you know, like this Christian, I'm Christian. I lead a miserable life and, and God's really happy with my miserable life. Is it wrong to seek this hope and joy as we seek to help others knowing that we benefit from their growing in grace? I think the answer to the question is no, it's not wrong. And I think this ties to a verse that is so misquoted and misapplied. 
It's like, it's like a, uh, we're going to come across one of them Sunday. It's like a prosperity preacher's dream verse, hoping you never read the Bible and never really consider what it, what it says. But Psalm 37, 4 says this, delight yourself also in the Lord. Some versions say, take delight in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So some people will say, come in, be all happy about God and you'll get whatever you want. You know, like, oh, Lord, I delight in you. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Right? What a, what a, again, that's a, that's a prosperity preacher's dream verse. I, I think that's wrong. I think, and this again, this is opinion here, that to seek joy in what God says pleases him and in what the apostle's telling us here, remember when the Bible speaks, God speaks, when the apostle says brings him joy or you and me joy. So if we're seeking something that brings joy to both God and to us, I think that's a worthy pursuit for a follower of Jesus. Because he says, take delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. When our desires reflect God's desires, that's good. And also a testimony of the, of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, a lot of times we just think, well, I'll just like God and he'll give me what I want. But what the reality is, is what he's saying here is, as you delight in the Lord, your desires are going to become his desires. You're going to become more like God. The more you delight in him, the more you worship him, the more you, the more you take delight in him, you will want the things that he wants. Does he want people to come in faith in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Does he want people to grow in their faith? Absolutely. Does he want what's happening in Thessalonica to happen where we live? Absolutely. So it seems to me this is a way to delight yourself also in the Lord, as it gives God glory, and you and I will find joy. Now, if you need any motivation, and we're really going to spend the rest of our time here on just a little small section of verse 19. He says, in the presence of or, or before our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's these little words at the end we want to look at, at his coming, at his coming. Talked a little bit about it in chapter one, a little bit more here, a lot about it when we get to chapter four, and then on into Second Thessalonians, he's going to talk about the coming of the Lord as well. So um, he says here, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ as his coming. The word presence is, is the word parousia, parousia. And it also means coming. Uh, some people translate it to be alongside. Now, in, in the Roman Empire, this word was used when a king would come and visit a city or uh, a military invasion of a country. So somebody with authority is coming to a certain place. Uh, it's also used in Roman, uh, you know, in Greek culture of the visitation of a deity. So someone is coming, and sometimes they would come with joy. Sometimes they would come with judgment. When, when Jesus returns, both will be present. Both will be present. And so here's the, here's the key question is, what will it be for you? What will it be for you when the Lord returns? Will it, will it be a time of, of joy? Or will it be a time of judgment? What will it be for your friends, for your family members, for your co-workers who've yet to hear the gospel? Now you say, oh, they've been to church. But how, about how, how many people can say that, that we spent our life growing up in church and we never really heard the gospel? We're going to talk about that Sunday. We're going to talk about that Sunday. Jesus and, and dead, false religion. All kinds of activity going on at the temple. And, the, and Jesus is like, this place is dead as a doorknob. This place is a waste of time. And, and, and so he starts overturning the tables, right? And he's like, look at what you've made this, turned this place into. 
And then he goes out and sees a fig tree. And he goes, look, see, dead fig tree. That's, that's what that church, that's what that temple is like. Now, you still have to come Sunday. You can't be like, well, I don't have to come because he already gave the message. So, so this is a theme that the coming of the Lord that the Apostle Paul, again, will explain further and in greater detail, especially chapter 4 and especially 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, it's very important to remember that the return of Jesus was central to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus taught about it. The apostles taught about it. And it's very interesting to me that we know that the Apostle Paul was only in Thessalonica for a short time. And yet, he taught these people about it. And, and presumably, Timothy is coming back saying, you know, we, we, yeah, you know how you got into the, into the, the return of the Lord teaching there, uh, Paul? He goes, yeah, and then we got run out of town. Yeah, he goes, there's a lot of questions on that stuff. And so he's trying to help them with a lot of their questions. Now, you say to yourself, why in the world would the Apostle Paul teach these new believers about this? I mean, did he have like some sort of a conspiracy theory ministry that he was making money on the side? Some of you have been around Christianity longer. You know exactly what I'm talking about, kind of the end times things where I I sell um, books and tapes. How many of you know what a tape is? Just curious, any of you know what a tape is? I was going to bring one to show you (laughs) if you didn't know what it was. And and so so did he have one of those kinds of ministries? No, he did not. So it appears that the Thessalonians were confused about this so, so here's the question. Why bring this up to people that are just getting started? Why, why even tell them about it? And you're just like, you're, you're just going to confuse them. And I think the reason is, is, is this. Um, there's a couple. One, I think, is that I, wanted, I think he wanted them to start living in light of the Lord's return. To realize that that this world is, is not it. Remember, we said when we did First Peter that that this world is not our home. We are pilgrims, pilgrims, are, and 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 we're sojourners. We are not home. We are on our way home. We're we're traveling somewhere, and so I think that was part of it too. Um, it seems to me also, again, just opinion that that he wanted them to see their present problems in light of this future hope. Again, hope not like, well, I hope it works out. No, 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 no. In light of this future certainty that the Lord was going to return someday. And and that's because our response to problems, and I'm not necessarily talking in the moment. Sometimes we don't do so well in the moment, but then we've had a little time to think about it. Our response to problems tells us a lot about our worldview. Tells us a lot about um, how we how we feel about the promises of God, and 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 this was key to the ministry of the apostles. I mean, we're going to constantly be challenged in our faith. Do we really believe that God is sovereign? Do do we really believe that that God is in control of everything, or or do we think that everything is just completely spinning out of control? Do we really believe that Jesus is going to return? I mean, are, are you sitting here today and going, well, I kind of hope he does. You know, I hope, I hope, you know. Or, or are you certain with that? It's like when I ask people, I, I say to them, are you a Christian? They go, I'm trying. I go, sorry to hear that because you're not then. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're trying, you're not a Christian. You either are one or you're not. You, you've either put your trust in Christ and you're a new creation or you're not. You're not You're not trying. You might say, I'm trying to live the Christian life. Yes, that's true. But but you're not you're not trying to be a Christian. So so either you believe Jesus is going to return or you don't. It's not like, well, I kind of hope I kind of hope it's not it's not it's not like that. Now, for years, the controversy on end times or eschatology which is uh, the, a fancy word for the doctrine of future things, was very big in the church in America. Very big. 
in particular, it became big in the 70s and 80s as the, as the Bible conference movement. That's when it really began to get traction. And so you'd have all these different ministries that would go, and again, they'd be selling their, their, their materials. Uh, it was also very big in the late 80s. Uh, that was, you say, why in the late 80s? Because in 1948, uh, Israel became a country again. Nobody ever thought that would happen. They became, they became a country again for these miraculous occurrences but in, in the war they won. And so people think, well, the Lord's going to return within a generation, 40 years, 1988, that he was going to return in 1988. Uh, coincidentally, that was the year that I got saved. I became a Christian in March 24th in 1988, and people were saying, "Woo, you got in just in time, man!" <laughs> right? <laughs> and and because he's coming back any day now. Some guy wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Returning in 1988, and then when he didn't return in 1988, he said, "Oh, I made a little calculation mistake," so he wrote another book that said 89 Reasons Why God, Jesus Is Returning in 1989. And then when that didn't go so well for him, he stopped writing books. And so, and so then, um, and then after that, it, it kind of calmed down for, for about 10 years or so, but there was still the Bible conference movement, books and tapes and stuff like that. But then remember Y2K? Those of you old enough to remember Y2K, the whole world was just going to fall into the abyss. And we were like, we were going to wake up the next day. And we're, you know, like uh, people like, well, I hope I wake up in heaven. Other people like, I know I'm going to hell. And so, and it was, it was a complete non-event. And uh, all these things are, are examples of, we, we, you know, we learn from history that we don't learn from history. That's what we learn from history. And, and so, and so during these, these times of, 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 of the late seven of the seventies and eighties and part of the nineties, uh, there was all kinds of end times stuff going on. Uh, pin the tail on the antichrist became very big. You know, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev had a red mark on his head. They're like, oh, that must mean something. You know, and, and every time a new president came, it was like, oh, maybe he's the, maybe he's the antichrist. Um, but here's the thing, as silly as we might look back on some of those things, now I think it's worse because so few people seem to even care anything about the second coming. It is not even on the radar of most people, rather than looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, the church in America has become more about living in the here and the now. And so many sermons now are about how what you can get from God, successful Christian living, how you can be happy. The problem is, is that the turnover rate in those churches are, is astronomical. And most people leave them and they go, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. Go to the typical prosperity church, and it's filled with old cars, a bunch of old beat-up vehicles, except for the spot that says reserved for pastor. If it's not chauffeur-driven, it's an expensive $80,000, $90,000 car. Which always brings me to the question, should we have a, a, a parking spot here that says reserved for Pastor Jim? Absolutely, we should. Should I park there? Absolutely never. <laughs> I should give it to somebody else every single week. And, and it's sad, though, that people are not about that stuff. So what, what was the apostle's point about talking about all of this stuff? Uh, did, did he want us to argue about it? Did he want us to um, be afraid? Did he want us to just totally dismiss it? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, therefore, and that's going to be a big chapter. We're going to talk about this. I'm giving, I want to sort of set the stage a little bit for it here tonight. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, don't, don't get all crazy about it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should be comforted by these things. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you should be terrified by these things. And you should put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, oftentimes the end times uh, discussions are not discussions at all. They, they result in arguments 
to me, which is very, very sad and extremely unbiblical. So I want to go through a few of the views with you. And there's tons of books, but here's the problem. Is there views within the views? So it's not like I'm going to touch on four or five, actually five or six views. And if, if, I don't, if I don't get to the sixth one, remind me. You say, you just go like this to me. Go six. You forgot six. And, um, and, and so there's, there's, there's really four. Now, lately, one's gained some traction, a fifth view. Uh, there's a sixth view as well. And um, that's actually very popular. And, and so I want to go through them. But if I misstate your view, I, I understand that because within each view, there are views. Not everybody, and we'll be here, you know, forever talking about these things and, and Jesus will come back and we might miss it. So we don't want that to happen. Um, to, to start with, I want to say this, that when it comes to the scripture, biblical Christians, in my opinion, agree on about 90 to 95% of the key doctrines in the word of God. Now I'm talking well-studied, well-thought-out, biblical Christians agree on about 90 to 95% of them, especially on how one obtains or receives, a better word than obtains, receives the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Therefore, we should we can charitably disagree on the timing of the end times. However, we can't be, we can't, you know, charitably disagree when people want to challenge that we are saved by grace through faith in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That is a non-negotiable. The virgin birth, non-negotiable. The, the, that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, non-negotiable. There, there, there's several non-negotiables that are constantly taught throughout the scriptures that we do not, we do not budge on. But the timing of Jesus's return, right? Jesus said, "No man knows the day or the hour." Hmm, what's he saying? <laughs> okay, so, so, so we have to be charitable on those things. Um. Again, a few more things before we begin. I think it's helpful for us to think of the coming of Christ uh, 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 as a a period of time rather than an event. I mean, he's already been here once. He's already been here, and, and his spirit is still here. His people are still here. He's here through his spirit and through his people. So we're rather thinking rather than an event, a period of time, and and almost. All people believe that a time of tribulation or the great tribulation is ahead of us. Some feel, feel it's already here. The key component to what everybody believes is this. Well thought out Christians. I'm not talking about you know people who are outside the, the pale of orthodox Christianity. Believe this. Jesus is returning. At the end of the day, if you're wherever you are on this, if you, 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 you may even change, that's fine. But, but at the end of the day, wherever you are in this, everybody believes that Jesus is returning. And, um, and at some point, everybody who puts their trust in Jesus, this is a common belief of these people, of all of these camps, that all who put their trust in Jesus will be with the Lord in an immortal state, the disagreement comes in the sequence of events and the timing of the events. And that's why I, I, I really, I desire for us to be a church that everybody doesn't always have to, you know, believe everything exactly the same way. And people are going to change their beliefs over time. I remember when we did on Sunday morning, we did 1 Corinthians. And when we came to the chapters, uh, particularly chapter 14 on speaking in tongues, 
I was like, oh boy. My wife's like, all right, now the church is going to split. Here we go. And, and it was a non-event. It was a non-event. We got to chapter 15, the resurrection, and this place was lit up. I, and I thought, oh, everybody know, nobody knows chapter 14. I'm going to have to explain it all. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, thanks, Jim. And then we get to chapter 15. I'm thinking everybody knows all this stuff. And everybody's like, dude, this is amazing. This is great. The Lord is so good. And I'm thinking, Lord, I'm sorry. I have to repent. I know nothing. I mean, I'm just dumb as a rock. And I get it. And he's like, you are, Jim. It's okay. I, I love you anyway. So, so this timing disagreements. And so we'll get into some of that. Much of the debate comes from, you want to write this in your notes. We're not going to, if we go there tonight, we'll be lost forever. Um, Much of the debate comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, where the term thousand years occurs six times, six times. And that thousand years is a time period known as the millennium. So some say Jesus Christ will rule over the nations uh, for a thousand years on earth in this millennium. Others say that heaven will rule over uh, or that Jesus will rule from heaven over earth through the power of the gospel. And again, others have different views. And as we said, there are views within views, but they all believe that Jesus will return. So we have this time called the millennium. So you may have heard this term. Some people will say that they are uh, they have a post-millennial view. And what do they what do they believe? They believe that Jesus will turn at, return after this millennial time period. And well, is it a thousand years? Well, some people say, yes, it's a literal thousand years. These, po- these post-millennial people, they say that. And, and others say, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what it is. It's just a long time. That, that's, all it really, that's all it really means. Others say, well, it means after the church age. That's what it means. And, and so they, they believe that Jesus will return post-millennial. That, that's what post afterwards. Another group take the amillennial view. Not like, ah, millennial. That's not what that means. Ah means none. So uh, some might say that means uh, no millennium on earth. We'll talk about it in a minute. Many of them say, we don't like that name. You know, just change our name because that's not what we really believe. Uh, others take the premillennial view that Christ will appear before this period. Now, some of you are looking at me like, I'm very confused. Okay, we haven't even gotten to the Great Tribulation yet. <laughs> okay, or the rapture or the second coming. So that's why I want to just slowly kind of bring some of this stuff out for us before we hit chapter four. So uh, within this time period called the um, tribulation, great, great tribulation, uh, people ask themselves, when will Jesus come for his church? Everybody believes Jesus is going to come for the church. Everybody believe, believe that this is going to happen. Um, so some people say, well, it, will it happen at this thing called the rapture? We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, that would make people, they would be pre-tribulation. Okay. So they're, they're thinking that Jesus is going to come before other people will say, nope, he's going to come in the middle. So they're mid-tribulation and other people say, no, he's going to come after that's post-tribulation. So you got, you got, you got pre-millennial, pre-tribulation, mid Millennial, mid tribulation, you got you got post. It's it's all and and again, there's views within views. Now, sadly, the sad part of this is a lot of people have used these views to form cults. A lot of them have used them to um, hurt people. Uh, a lot of people who would say, "Well, we're in the tribulation now, so we're we're God's instruments of the tribulation to mess these people up." All kinds of stuff happens. Uh, some people use it as an excuse to be inactive. Some people use it as an excuse to be nothing. Some people use it to set dates. And then the dates don't come. They go, oh, I miscalculated. They set other dates. And that uh, kooky guy, Harold Camping, was very famous for that, constantly uh, setting dates. And um, I, this pulpit did call him a nut job at one point in time. And um, so... 
I'm getting more mature now. I'm just calling him kooky. Okay. And uh, he's no longer alive. Now he knows. So, so now, now we get into the four main views now that everybody's thoroughly confused and you now you're looking like I, he's right. I should have had that next cup of coffee. Uh, the four main views, uh, number one, uh, really there's six main views, but, but we're going to, you have to remind me if I miss five and six, number one, post millennialism, post millennialism. And, and, and if, if you're a post millennialist and I, and I misstate your view, I'm sorry. Remember, there are views within views. They teach that the kingdom of God is currently advancing now, which, you know, in some ways seems to make sense. How? How is it advancing? They would say that it's advancing through the preaching of the gospel, the ministry of the church, and the power of the word of God to change lives. Some, most, not all, say the millennium is not a a literal thousand years. It's just a long period of time. Others say that it's the last thousand years before Jesus returns. Uh, Some would just say it's the long stretch of time between the first coming and the second coming. Um, In this view, uh, the church has replaced disobedient Israel Jesus returns at the end of the millennial period after the Lord has drawn many people to himself through the gospel. Again, we're still in the post-millennial view. Um, When Jesus returns, the rapture occurs. What's the rapture? The rapture is God taking the people of God out of this world. Then the second coming, resurrection from the dead, judgment and eternal life. Everything happens very rapidly in succession, almost where you might not even be able to tell what's going on because of how rapid it happens. If you've heard the term, more confusion, preterism, uh, not a great doctrine. Uh, partial preterism is, is, is certainly more biblical, and partial preterists believe that the book of Revelation has largely taken place already, um, and, and predominantly most of it was fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, and basically everything is ready except for Jesus returning. Um, about, a, about 100 years ago, this view was adapted by many, many liberal uh, theologians, and once that happened, biblical Christians, what did they do? They head for the door. <laughs> if they believe it, it must be bad. And um, But yet, um, these days, it's making a big comeback. It's making a big comeback. Number two, number two. You're like, oh, good, we're getting there. Number two is amillennialism. This may be the fastest growing today. Today, this may be the fastest growing. And the timing is similar in many ways to post-millennialism, but this view is not near as optimistic. Remember, the other people thought, oh, you know, people are getting saved, things are going pretty good, and then, you know, Jesus is going to come. But um, now most people who take this view believe that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at the resurrection, but predominantly things are getting worse, not better, and that the, the, what will really mark this time period in between the resurrection and the coming of the Lord is the suffering of the people of God. Now, some of you are like, amen, I think I might want to believe in that one. Okay, and, and, and they see Revelation 20 describing the reign of Christ throughout the ages, both in heaven and on earth through the church, and again, many of them don't like the term amillennialism because it means no, none, or no millennium. Some of them would prefer the term a realized millennium. In other words, it, it, it's going to happen, and then Jesus is going to return. We could even be in the midst of it now. Number three, historic premillennialism. Uh, historic premillennialism. Um, they would take Revelation chapter 6, the last book of the Bible, um, chapter 6 through 18, 
would be considered to be history, not uh, future. That's where they get the name, historic premillennialism. They believe that there will be a time of great apostasy or a great falling away from the faith, um, then the great tribulation, then the second coming of Christ before the millennium. That will all be before the millennium. That's why it's pre-millennialism. At Christ's coming, they will have already pinned the tail on the Antichrist and, and, and he'll be judged. The true people of God will be resurrected and then the rapture of the church. Christ will take the church out of the world. <coughs> Satan will be bound. Jesus will rule and there will be some prosperity till the end. Then Satan will be loosed and eventually the rebellion will be uh, crushed. Now, one of the reasons that this view is probably, to me, the most problematic of the views, and, and every view has their positive and negatives, trust me, is that <coughs> this view does not, excuse me, does not really believe in what we call the doctrine of eminence. What that means is, is we'll often say that Christ can return at any time. So we talk about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And so these people would not believe in that because this position holds that certain things must take place before Jesus returns. So uh, such as the rise of the beasts and the false prophet. And, 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 and so they don't kind of believe in that. Um, it doesn't have much to say about Israel, whereas the next position has Israel as being part of God's redemptive plan. Now, the fourth position is dispensational premillennialism. Are we super confused now? Okay, good. I didn't want to deal with it all in chapter four. This was the really predominant view of the last century. It's been losing some traction. And um, it, it basically goes like this, that um, the church age ends, church age is the age that we live in now, with the rapture of the church. And in the rapture of the church, the Lord takes the church out of the world and, and, and takes them to heaven. Uh, that will be followed by this, the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation and, and the appearance of the Antichrist. So he could take the church out at any moment. So that's why when people were constantly trying to name the Antichrist, uh, if, there's no reason to even have to look for him. It's possible that, that, that Satan has raised up an Antichrist in every generation, and God has just said, no, it's not time yet. But but they're hoping that this is going to be the guy who the Lord's going to take his people out. And then there's going to be this seven-year tribulation. So in this tribulation, for three and a half years, there's there's going to be basically world peace, followed by three and a half years of great suffering, then the second coming, um, then the world will be judged, and Satan will be bound. For a thousand years, Christ will reign over the earth from Jerusalem in a time of peace until Satan is released. Then Satan and the wicked are cast into the lake of fire and the righteous live forever with Jesus in a new heaven and a new earth. So um, it go, that view goes like this. Jesus could come at any time. It views the rapture and the second coming as two separate events. That's why we try to think of it as that, as a, um, as a time period. And the Lord comes, takes believers out of the world. He can come at any moment, followed by that seven-year period, and then um, followed by the second coming of Christ. So in the, in, the, in the rapture, the Lord takes his people to heaven. And in the second coming, the Lord comes to the Mount of Olives. And it is the unbelievers that are taken out while God's people are left with him. He returns with his, with his people that he took out and that have preceded us in death. 
Now, so you, you have confusion within all of this stuff. Um, there's broader types of premillennialism. There's some people call it, they believe in futuristic premillennialism, um, where the rapture will be first. You, you guys are like, oh, when's it going to end soon? The CD is going to run out. Um, <laughs> so the rapture can be first, which means that can be a pre or mid or post rapture. Uh, a growing position number five is the pre-wrath position. That, that's really been getting a lot of traction lately. A very large megachurch pastor who has since been fired within the la- in this year came out in favor of it. So I don't know how the traction is going to go with that. And so the people of God are part of the tribulation, but they are taken out. They are raptured, taken out before God's wrath. Some people say it's part of, it's similar to a mid-tribulation rapture. And anybody driving their car right now who takes the pre-wrath position is now driving their car into a telephone pole if they're hearing me on the radio because <laughs> they're like, that's not what we believe. Okay, I, I get it. Uh, my position for 30 years has been the, has been dispensational premillennialism uh, for a lot of different reasons, but which I won't go into, but I appreciate the other views. Um, what I don't like about the, the views is this. I don't like the unbrotherly lack of love some of the various proponents of the different views have demonstrated over the years. That I'm not into at all, at all. And, and we can discuss these things. We can debate these things. But, but, but as, as brothers and sisters in Christ who believe the, the essentials of the faith— we are never to demean, to divide, or to dismiss one another over them. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul will talk about the rapture. Here in chapter 2, chapter 1, I was waffling over, is it the judgment or the, or the rapture? Chapter 4, I will not waffle. Here in, in, in this chapter, um, I'm, I'm waffling, but less than I was in chapter one. I think he's talking about the judgment seat at the end of the age. And the reason I think that is, is that's when he's going to joy in the faith of the Thessalonian church and how well they have done. But I'm open to others who want to say it's the rapture. And the reason I'm, I'm always open to discussing these positions with people is simply this. At the end of the day, my hope is in sal- the salvation that is found in the person of Jesus Christ, not where I stand on end times timing. And, and so that's, that, that's where it is for me. All true followers of Jesus agree in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins and Jesus rising from the dead and that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. All true followers of Jesus believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. All true followers of Jesus realize that you will either meet him in some fashion or you will meet him in death. But eventually, you're going to have to stand before him in judgment. And so we all, we all agree on these things. The question is far less, when are you going to meet Jesus? But the real question is, are you ready to meet Jesus? And I didn't get to the sixth one. None of you gave me the sign. The sixth one is what some people call, and, and it's not a good position, I don't think, but, but it is, I understand why some people think this, and, and it's called panmillennialism. And it means it will all pan out in the end. <laughs> I, I don't think that's a good position to take. 
But I certainly think it is worthy to take this position that I have trusted my salvation in the life of another. I'm not trusting in myself to get to heaven. I'm trusting in the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the seated at the right hand of God, uh, authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, I put my trust. And he comes back when he comes back. Yes, it's good to have a view on these things. But ultimately, my trust is in Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. Well, let's stand and pray.